Satan, we rebuke you in Jesus' name. Satan, we rebuke you for all of your works. We rebuke you for wearing away the body of Christ. We rebuke you for all you have tried to do. And we demand in the name of Jesus that you will remove yourself entirely from this whole area in the name of Jesus. Take all of your minions, take all of your demons right out in Jesus' name. The blood of Jesus. The blood of Jesus. Father, we ask that the Holy Spirit is going to fill the whole area. Not just the house, not just the garden, but a whole fringe right the way around in Jesus' name. That you will even encompass us about this morning in Jesus' name. Father, we thank you for the troops of angels comforting us around. And thank you, we're surrounded with your ministering flames of fire. And they're here to minister to us. We know that they are. Because Hebrews 1.14 says that they are. We know it's true. Hallelujah. Father, therefore I'm asking, Father, for light to start pouring out of this meeting this morning. Father, we are asking that a low pressure is going to be turned into a high pressure in the name of Jesus. And that, Father, we should uh, go some way this morning to understanding what depression is all about. And, Father, just understanding the way of victory even this morning. Father, we just ask for your guidance in all that we say, all that we do Jesus' name. Oh, praise your wonderful name. Amen. Hallelujah. Amen. Praise God. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Now, we're on the subject this morning of depression. I want to say before I actually begin that depression comes in so many different forms it's impossible to deal with them all, obviously, in detail. But if anyone ever claims to you that there's a simple answer to depression, they are misguided and they are wrong. Now, I want to make that quite clear. You will always meet the person who says they have had depression and how it's instantly gone and they've never had any trouble with it since. I would tend to say that they probably didn't have depression in the first place, that probably they felt just a bit low, you know, and uh, they think that just feeling a bit low is being depressed. Well, I suppose it is in a way, but of course by depression we mean something much worse than that, don't we? We mean something that is so insidious it creeps up on you. You seem to try to do as much as you can to stop the thing overtaking you, and yet it creeps up and up and up and up. And once it is over you, it's almost impossible to find a way out of the situation. You'll generally find that people who claim to have been marvellously delivered from depression and never to have had it again, and if you actually talk to them, they've probably never been in a situation where everything was totally hopeless and totally blank. Now, I had depression very badly. And at the point of my salvation, the depression went instantaneously, right? I couldn't stop smiling. My, my cheeks just ached because of the smiles that, that came upon me. And I thought, this is marvelous, tremendous deliverance, until it crept back a few months later. <laughs> and I had then to learn, and it took me probably three or four years, how to actually control the depression. So that I can tell you now, I am total master of depression. It would be totally wrong of me to say that there is never a morning when I wake up and I don't feel the old thing coming on again. That would be a total lie. But now I know how to deal with it. I have learned and I've been trained how to deal with it. Now, We've got to realize that coming out from depression is a long-term business. It is not as easy as to say, oh, well, it's delivered. That is far too simple. You see, generally speaking, 
and demons get in because of a problem that is already there. And you can be delivered from the demons, and sometimes they've affected you so badly, these demons, that you feel better immediately afterwards. But the root cause is still there, you see. Have you ever seen this? Let's begin in Galatians. I wasn't going to begin in Galatians, but let's, let's turn to Galatians. And let me just make this point before we begin. Galatians chapter 5. All right, Galatians 5. Is there a spare Bible? Have you got a spare Bible? Well, no. You're all right. The glasses. Great, okay. Uh, Galatians chapter 5, and I'm beginning verse 9. And let's, let's read this and understand it. Now, here it says, the works of the flesh. By the flesh, it means the old nature within one. There are some people around who believe the moment you are born again, you don't have an old nature. Now, if that were true, I tell you, you'd never sin again. You'd never have any desire at all to do anything wormful. You'd never get depression again in all your life. And unfortunately, it is not true. What the Bible says is that because of the work of Jesus on the cross, you are released from the stranglehold of it. But you have to choose for the new man. It says, put off the old man, put on the new. And here it's talking about the works of the flesh. And he says, now the works that are generated by this old flesh are manifest. Here they are, adultery, fornication, you or would accept those as works of the flesh, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry. Now look at that, witchcraft. Isn't that interesting? Then it lists the others, hatred, various emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envying, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like. Now, let's take the witchcraft aspect of this. Now, we would say that witchcraft is entirely demonic, wouldn't we? Most of us would think that anyone who is in witchcraft, oh, it's definitely a demon. You know, they're definitely in bondage to the devil. And so they are. But what this says is they are in witchcraft, not because of the demon, first of all, but because in their own heart, because in their own heart, they wanted to go after the devil first. And having set themselves to follow the flesh, then the demons crept in upon them. Can you see that? Now, therefore, it is not as easy to say about depression, oh, it's simply demonic. And you can get ministry and ministry and ministry. You can have this demon kicked out of you, that demon kicked out of you, and you will feel fine. But listen, the day will come when you again start feeling slightly depressed. Because of the flesh. You know, because of a natural disposition towards depression. Now, both, therefore, have got to get dealt with. You've got to have the spiritual dealt with, but you've also got to have the natural dealt with. And so this morning, I'm going to be really down to earth, and I'm going to talk about what is the root cause of depression, and let's see some root causes, so that you can identify what it is. You see, I know now, if I should feel a bit depressed one morning, I generally know what is causing the depression, and I can deal with it instantaneously. That's why I can say to you, I've been totally free of depression for about three or four years, you see. But you notice, when I say free, I mean free because I have exercised what I know in the realm of depression. Yeah? In my natural man, it is a natural tendency for me to be depressed. Do you know that all of us have areas of weakness and areas of strength in our old nature? Did you know that? Yeah. The areas of strength are the areas where we have no trouble at all, you know? And we meet someone whose area of strength is our area of strength, and you just can't understand how they can be in bondage to that particular thing. Someone who's uh, got a, a fancy for the old foods, you know, for example, and really can't stop tasting drink. And it's their area of weakness. But it's not yours. And you say, well, I don't understand that, you know. How come, uh, well, I don't have any problem in that area. And then you'll meet someone else, and they've got an area of weakness, which is exactly the same as yours. And you say, you know, I really, 
understand. <laughs> and, and I've generally found that uh, people who are like me, you know, I've got a lot of sympathy for them, but people who aren't like me, I can't really understand what it is. And I, I have to minister to all and sundry. And some of the things, I couldn't believe, you know, some of the, the things that people have as problems. I just can't believe that anyone can have that as their problem. I just don't understand it, you know. But now I've learned how to understand it, because it's as real a problem to them as my problems are to me. Depression is something which I think is one of the worst problems that a person can have. Basically, not only because it's so black when you're in it, but also because no one else understands. They tend to think that you're just being a bit stupid or pull yourself together. You know, that is the phrase that's used. Now, come on, pull yourself together. And if only they could understand that, in fact, it's a very hard thing to do. You feel as if you're completely sunk in treetop. You can't swim to the top. You can't get anywhere at all. You want people around, but you don't want people around. The minute no one's around, you feel, oh, if only someone will call. The minute they call, you really wish they would go again, because you can't bear, you know? And, I mean, this is one of the, the variations. Now, once you have an understanding of depression, it does help. We've had a number of depressives really set free in Chichester. It has been a long job. By that time, in six months, a year. And it can only occur, freedom from depression can only occur with the 100% help of the person involved. Yeah? The person who's in depression has got to have a real desire to get rid of it. That's the first thing. And if they don't, and I'll talk about this a little later on, if they don't, then there is no way of freedom at all for them. I wish I brought with me a man to see you all this weekend who used to be high up in the Royal Navy. He used to be a, a Harrier jet engineer. And all of a sudden, depression hit him. He'd never been depressed in his life. He'd had a very happy upbringing, two lovely daughters. All of a sudden, depression hit him. And a, I mean, a really wonderful Christian. And he just couldn't cope with the job. And after really going through a terrible time in depression, he was retired from the Royal Navy uh, up north. And he came down south and worked on a farm, and he couldn't even handle that. Now, that man went through agony. I mean, he was in and out of mental hospitals with this depression. It was terrible. It took us about a year and a half to get him really free. But today, he's free, and he has been free now for a consistent period of, I think, about two and a half years. So it is possible. But I'll tell you as we go on just how we managed to get him from his depression. All right? And one of the, the problems, and I want to start on this when we're talking about depression, is it's this dreadful feeling that no one understands. And the worst thing is that God doesn't understand. That's the funny thing. There's part of the problem. Do you come in? That's all right. It's, it's the, the worst aspect of depression is when you reach the point when, honestly, you really feel that even God is cut off from you. Now, it's at that point that the devil really has a heyday when finally you think that not even God has heard you. Now, let's begin, first of all, with understanding this. God has promised he will never cut off from us, no matter how low we ever go. We've got to get that into our thick skulls to begin with. Because if we don't get that, then there is going to be real problem, as far as our life is concerned. Do you know there's only been one human being who's been cut off from God? And that's the Lord Jesus Christ. And he was cut off that we might never be cut off again. And on the cross, when he said, my God, the Father, my God, the Holy Spirit, why have you forsaken me? He meant, I am now totally by myself. In the most difficult of circumstances, God, whom I have had... Um, 
fellowship with for all eternity has now turned his back upon me and can no longer look at me. Now he went through that. But the great thing is he got through it. And therefore when he was raised from the dead, he has defeated all tendency in nature for us to be cut off from God. He's defeated that. Therefore he's able to say, I will never leave you, nor will I forsake you. That's a promise. Turn with me to 1 Kings. We're going to be in 1 Kings a bit this morning. 1 Kings chapter 20. And let's just see the mistake that the Syrians made. And I want to say this. If you're in this room this morning, never, ever, ever make this mistake again. Please. If, though you've done it, never make it again. 1 Kings 20 and verse 22. 1 Kings 20 and verse 22. And the prophet came to the king of Israel, 1 Kings 20, 22, and said unto him, Go, strengthen thyself, and mark and see what thou doest. For at the return of the year, the king of Syria will come up against him. There's going to be a battle. The king of Syria is coming up, and I'll give you advanced warning. And I give you all advanced warnings. There will be days when depression starts creeping up. Right? Then he says, And the servants of the king of Syria said unto him, Their gods are gods of the hill. And the trouble is, you know, that we think that in our own minds. We think that God is the God of the high spots, the God of the hills. When we're feeling great, you know, when we're rah, rah, rahing, you know, when everything's going absolutely superbly in our life, then we think our God is our God. And we think, oh, it's marvelous. You know, he's, I'm really communicating with him. I will really going on with God, yes? These mountaintop experiences that we get. And so they say, their gods are the gods of the hills. Therefore, they were stronger than we. Alright? And they had actually fought on the hills, and Israel had defeated Syria. And here are the Syrians saying, oh, that's because their god is the god of the hills. Look what it says. But let us fight against them in the plain, and surely we will be stronger than they. And do this thing, take the kings away, every man out of his place, and put captains in their rooms. And number thee an army like the army that thou hast lost, horse for horse, chariot for chariot, and we will fight against them in the plain, that's in the valley. And surely we will be stronger than they. And he hearkened unto their voice and did so. And it came to pass at the return of the year that Ben-Hadad numbered the Syrians and went up to Aphek to fight against Israel. And the children of Israel were numbered and were all present and went against them. And the children of Israel pitched before them like two little flocks of kids that the Syrians filled the country. And there's depression creeping up every problem. You look around and somehow your Christianity seems so small. Somehow the speaking with tongues just really doesn't seem to work. And everyone says, oh, go around the house speaking with tongues. And you feel as if it's a little flock of sheep. And all the problems are beginning to press in on you. And look what it says, verse 28. And there came a man of God and spake unto the king of Israel and said, Thus saith the Lord, because the Syrians have said, The Lord is God of the hills, but he is not God of the valleys. Therefore will I deliver all this great multitude into thine hand, and ye shall know that I am the Lord. Because our God is the God of the valleys also. And I want you to know the promise in Isaiah is that the high places shall be made low. Any mountains we've had in our lives are going to be knocked down and be made smooth. And the valleys shall become mountains. And I know full well that all the weak areas we've had in our lives are turned into areas of great strength. And if you have had depression, I want you to know, it means this, you have a greater capacity 
for really moving into the victory of Jesus and into the enjoyment of Jesus than anyone else. There are some people who've never had depression in their lives, and I'll tell you something about them. In a sense, they'll never really fully have an appreciation of the Lord to the depth that depressives have, you see. Because the lower you've gone down, somehow the higher you can go up. Isn't it funny? And here am I to prove it. One who was <laughs> deeply, deeply low, and now someone, well, people wouldn't believe I was much depressive. They really find it incredible. The number of people who say, now really, it can't be so. And I just wish my father had lived a bit longer, because he would have come along and jolly well told you. <laughs> exactly, that it used to be true of me. I can speak now because I have learnt the way of victory, and I tell you, my appreciation of God is even higher. I suppose it's like these people who've been deeply into the world. Once they get saved, they never want the world again. They've already disillusioned. The problem of people are those who've never been in the world and spend their Christian life saying, well, I wonder whether the world could have given me some happiness. And so they won't quite deeply go into the world, but they scoot along, you know. Beloved, I want you to know he's the God of the valley. And he's the God of the mountain. And the promise for you this morning is he will turn your valley into the mountain as long as you follow the instructions and as long as your hearts are really determined to go his way. Let's just see that again in the New Testament. Let's have a look at Romans 8, this passage. And I would say, if you are a depressive, right, you really do need to write this verse out and have it around the house. I tell you, I used to have these at key points. I had one copy of this in my top pocket. I had one copy just near the sink. I had one copy in the loo, both sides. Wherever I needed it, I had other scriptures in the bedroom, but this one was a key one, and I wrote that, and I tell you, I learnt it off by heart. I learnt it until it was in my thick skull, until I could repeat it like a parrot. Praise the Lord. Look what it says, verse 37. Nay, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. And I was always thrilled by the in there. In all these things, in the valley, we're more than conquerors. And there you are sitting in the valley, and you've got to say, well, Lord, in this place, because of your work, I still am more than a conqueror. I don't feel it, or my circumstances seem to say no, but Lord, I am more than a conqueror. In all these things, I'm more than a conqueror. Until people think you're bombing, you've got to keep saying it. Now look, verse 38, for I am persuaded. And the trouble is that depressives are not really persuaded about this. Persuaded means there was a time when I didn't believe it, but finally, someone has so gone on and on and on and on and on at me, and nagged and nagged and nagged, that finally I said, okay, you're right. Hallelujah. Now, the Holy Spirit is the one who will nag at you to get this in, as long as he's got the sword of the Spirit to fight with. Remember that the Word of God is the ammunition that the Spirit uses. And if you do not really go in with the Word of God, you are cutting off, as it were, the armaments from the Spirit of God. Now, that's why I say carry this verse around. And every time... You need it. Get it out three times a day before meals. Right? Get it out. Have a read because I tell you the Holy Spirit can use it. And he will nag and he will nag and he will nag and he'll convince and convince and convince and convince and convince until finally you say, yes, I'm persuaded. I am persuaded that neither death nor life, and they're the things of life, neither angels, they're demons, nor principalities, they're higher demons, nor powers, they're higher demons still, nor things present, or present circumstances, nor things to come, tomorrow's circumstances, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now that's a heap 
powerful promise. And you've got to keep it always with you, right? To regain the territory. What is depression? Now, that, that's the thing we've got to understand, first of all, that God never, ever, ever separates from us. If we know that, and if that can, we can really be persuaded, we've always got a little bit of hope, even though we're in the lowest of the low depression. We've got a little, you can just see the light at the end or the beginning of the tunnel, right, whichever way you're looking. All right, what is depression, basically? Depression is simply where something comes along and dominates you in a particular area. Dominates to the point where you cannot move at all. It can be circumstances, it can be all types of things. It can be emotional pressure, a, a, a whole number of, of things. But something comes and you find yourself unable to control the things that have come upon you. Right, so the first point is God never cuts off. But the second point is you've got to realize that man has been given the power to dominate. Turn and see that in Hebrews chapter 2. This is God's perfect plan for man. The book of Hebrews. Alright? And chapter 2. Verse 5. Now, this is a, a, I'm telling you now, what are your rights? Once you know your rights, you can start actually claiming them. Okay, once you know the rights. Verse 5. For unto the angels hath he not put in subjection the world to come, whereof we speak. There is an amazing statement. The demons and Satan and the archangel Gabriel and all the rest will not have power over the world that is to come. Who has he given power? over the world to come, to man, to ordinary homo sapiens, man, that's every one of us in this room, I think I spoke a bit about that last night, didn't I, when I said we're the royal family, we're going to be the ones with rulership in the future kingdom, verse 6, but one in a certain place testified, saying, what is man that thou art mindful of him, or the son of man that thou visitest him. And there's David in Psalm 8 saying, Lord, I can't understand this. Man is such a futile being. Why are you interested in man? And David had made a major error there. The error that most depressives make. They hadn't seen just who they were. Just who man is. They got skeptical over man. And there was big God. And there was little man. And they thought, well, Lord, honestly, I'm such a futile wretch. Oh, I'm just an absolute nothing. You know, I don't know why you bother with me. And there's the question that the psalmist asks. Most depressively have asked themselves. And here's the answer, verse 7. And this is ordinary man. This is not Jesus at this point. Right? It became true of Jesus. This is ordinary Adam. Thou made us Adam a little lower than the angels. But thou crownest him with glory and honor and did set him over the works of thy hand. And do you remember in the early days of Genesis, he planted the garden and he told the man to keep it and to till it. Remember that? He put man in charge of all the works. And it says, Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. For it was said to Adam, Go and dominate this place. Every animal, they've got to be in subjection to you. Everything on the face of the earth, in subjection. And you know that man has been designed to dominate his surroundings. And depression is the exact opposite of what man was called to. Depression is, Oh, I can't help it. You know? This thing has crept up on me and it's dominating me. It's a total uh, lie as far as God's purpose for man was concerned. 
Man was designed to be the dominator around here, not circumstances, not demons, not anything else. Look what it says. For in that he put all in subjection under man, he left nothing that is not to put under him. And the next phrase is very important. But now we see not yet all things put under him. Now, why is that true? You take a good look around, and everything seems to be on top, and not under. And the word there for see means to have a good, long look, or rail it is in the Greek. Have a good, long look, and you take a good, long look. You know, your circumstances, you sit down one day, and you think of your circumstances, and you say, honestly, here I am, I'm 18, and I'm not married yet. <laughs> or something like that. Or here I am, I'm 22, and I'm still not the managing director of the company. And so you take a good long look, and they don't understand it, and this person doesn't like it, and this person. And all of a sudden, it's not under subjection when you look. But notice what he says in the next, in verse 9. But, whenever you see the word but, it's what's called a conjunction of contrast. In other words, it's about to state the exact opposite of what went before. We don't see everything under, but we see Jesus. The word see there is entirely different to the word see above. The word see here is the word blepo. On a radar screen, you have what's called blips. The word blip comes from the word blep, blepo, you see. And, and what happens with the radar screen? The arm sweeps round and it goes beep, beep, beep. And it means to keep on glancing at something. Take a little look and turn away, a little look and turn away, a little look and turn away. And it says, we keep on glancing towards Jesus. Now, in a sense, the, the secret is in Jesus. Because Jesus has restored to man the position that man had before the fall. It was the fall that caused the circumstances, the environment, to fight back against man. Do you remember thorns started coming up? Before the fall, Adam would till the ground, plant the seeds, and up they come. Now, the ground suddenly says, I'm not going to be pushed around by you. You know? And he plants seeds, and what comes up? Weeds come up. You know, and he says, oh, I didn't plant those. And the ground says, no, so you can lump it. And it's fighting back, you see. And now, instead of the weather being always good, the weather fights against mm -hmm. us sometimes, you know. And uh, anticyclonic conditions come over, you know, high pressure. And high pressure pushes down on you, and depression begins, you know. Or the seasons are changing. And some depressives find spring the most depressing time of the whole year, you know, because winter suited their mood. And now summer's coming on. They really can't face summer. Other depressives find autumn very difficult because they quite like the sunshine. But they don't, you know. And isn't it amazing? Even the weather's fighting back against us. But in Jesus, we have been restored to our former position of dominators. Now, that's the great news to all depressive. That if you keep glancing at Jesus, you will see he dominated everything. He was able to dismiss the wind instantly. Though everything came against him, he was able to shrug it off. Even the time when he was cut off, he struggled up and came bouncing up. It says death couldn't keep him down. You know the picture there? It's of a swimming pool with these cork. Have you ever seen these cork uh, sort of mats that they have? You know, and little kids hold them up and kick their legs. Have you ever tried to get one of those down to the bottom of a swimming pool? Have you ever tried? It's so <laughs> difficult. You push, push like this, it just won't go down. And that's the picture. Death pushed Jesus down but couldn't keep him down. And he just bubbled up to the surface. Praise the Lord. And do you know, he has put the same power in every believer. There is an unpushability in the heart and in the spirit of the believer. A bubbling life source inside, if only it's released. 
Now that's the truth of every single person who's born again. Your new man is like a cork mat that refuses to be pushed down. Your old man is like a shroud that covers you up. And there's the fight. Now the trouble is, most depressives have lived for so long in the old man. They rejoice in the old man. They enjoy the old man. It suits them down to the ground. And so the new man is squashed. Now what we've got to try and do is to reverse the roles so that the new man now becomes dominant. All right, now how are we going to do it? Well, I'm going to now point out to you about six causes of depression. Now let's get this right. The devil sometimes gets depressives on the run. And they think it's a really serious problem. And they can't put their finger on it. If you can identify why you are depressed, you really are halfway to freedom from depression. Do you know that that is true? You're halfway to freedom. So I'm going to list six possible causes of depression. I've generally found that most depressives fit into one of these categories, you know. And honestly, if you can sit down, take a good long look at your circumstances, depressives are excellent at doing this. Don't think to train them. They really are masters of it. But instead of looking at it in a depressive way, if you can take a long look and say, now why am I depressed? And understand why. It's a huge amount, well, a huge way to freedom from depression. Now, the first one is what I call physical causes. And I don't want you to underestimate these causes. We in the Move of the Spirit tend to put spiritual causes top. I've generally found that physical causes are top. Now I'm talking about hormones, first of all. It's amazing, isn't it? Do you know, for a little pile of hormonal powder, Christians go through a huge amount of depression, really. Sometimes there is a hormonal imbalance. Men as well, you know, suffer from waves, hormonal waves. We tend to think of women as the hormonal creatures, and so they are. But men are also hormonal in some ways. With women, it's much more obvious. I mean, I don't have to spell it out, but obviously they have cycles, uh, very distinct cycles, and the hormones vary. Now, if Satan can get you on the run at that point, you see, he seems, well, he does a lot of damage. If you can understand your own hormonal cycle, and know exactly what the danger point is, and recognize that's it. Then you can simply say, oh, well, it's just something hormonal. And if you can honestly isolate it as easily as that, do you see how easy that is? Oh, well, just, just hormonal. The devil doesn't get you on the run. Nothing gets you on the run. You can just say, well, it will pass in a few days. And what I would do, honestly, is I would get prayer, if this is true of you, a hormonal imbalance, get prayer for healing, for healing of the hormonal imbalance. And then, if necessary, I would go and uh, chat to a doctor or some, a medic, preferably a Christian medic, about it all, and let the Christian medic pray for you, you know? Because they may be able to just suggest something. My wife does a lot of this type of therapy. She is a doctor. And in the, the fellowship, it's marvelous. The people she's prayed for and the hormonal cycles have been dealt with. Menopause is sometimes a very difficult period, you know? There is a book called The Male Menopause. I'm not quite sure, you know, whether I agree with that. But nevertheless, it makes the point, you know, there is a, a basic hormonal imbalance at different times. So that's the first physical cause. But you know, I'm thinking of other physical causes as well. Very hard circumstances at work. Difficulties at home, you know, physical difficulties at home, when you've got a lot of children to look after, you know? I think you must not allow the devil to get you on the run in circumstances like that. If you do, then he'll lie to you about the causes. He'll say, oh, it's terribly serious. You know, you're really going mad now. This is a mental problem. And it's not mental at all. It's a simple physical problem. So that's the first. Any form of physical problem. The second one are mental problems. 
Now, by this, I'm not referring to mental illness. Sometimes depression is caused by mental illness. I'm not talking about that this morning. I'm talking about um, things like boredom. Boredom. If you're making notes, make sure you get that down. Loneliness. These are terrible things, you know. And Christians suffer from them more than anyone else. Loneliness is a terrible thing in the body of Christ. Because you know you shouldn't be lonely, yet you are lonely. And you can be in a crowd and still lonely. You're standing at the, the corner and no one seems to come up to you and talk to you. And in the middle of a crowd, you feel more lonely than you do by yourself. And somehow people come up and they seem to wander on to someone else. And a terrible loneliness. The next thing is a lack of appreciation under mental things. You know, this dreadful feeling that no one really appreciates you. That no one really uh, thinks you're, you're very nice. Really. Do you all know the type of strain that I'm talking about? You have no idea of how small a trigger it takes. That's all. It's a little trigger, and all of a sudden, the Third World War has broken out. You know, at Sarajevo, do you remember the First World War? One man shot a royal man and his wife, and the whole of the world was plunged into war for five years. Just a little trigger. Depression is the same. And the devil knows your little triggers, you see. Now, if you can cut him off at the pass, you really have found, uh, you know, a lot of relief. Right, so that's that type of pressure. So that is, first of all, physical pressure. The second thing, then, is, sorry, mental pressure. All right? The third, then, is spiritual pressure. Now, I want you to know that, generally speaking, spiritual pressure is not really as vibrant as other pressures. Don't blame demons, please. Try and cut demons as much from your mentality as possible. Because generally, demons are secondary to the real problem. But it can sometimes be a demonic force. So that's a spiritual pressure. But a bigger spiritual pressure is blaming God for things. That's a terrible uh, physical, uh, spiritual pressure, I think, um, spiritual pressure. When finally you get bitter towards God, you know, and finally it's all God's fault that you're in this uh, type, of, type of mess. And so all of a sudden you're... Uh, you know, sitting there, and then you're saying, God, you know, you have power to deal with this type of situation. Why aren't you? You've deliberately done, you know, you've really got it in for me, haven't you? You're a big, big father with a big stick, and you're going to bop me on the head the minute I enjoy myself at all. That can produce a depressive type of feeling. So that's the third one, spiritual pressure. The fourth one is ever so simple. It's overtiredness, overwork, and overstrain. Oh, do you see how simple these are? Overtiredness, overwork. I doubt whether anyone here suffers from this. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> overstrain, overtiredness. You've got to watch these. All right. I'll be showing you how to deal with each of these in just a minute. So that's number four. Number five then is unconfessed or deliberate sin. Unconfessed or deliberate sin. I don't have to spell that out, do I? But listen, if you find that you are in a position where you have something that is wrong with you, in other words, you're in bondage to some sin, it may be a secret sin, it could be a sin that you just think about a great deal in your head, that is no excuse for being out of fellowship. Because God has made it easy to get into fellowship. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And God says, if you have sinned in your mentality, or if you've sinned in some other way, for heaven's sake, confess it first of all and get back into fellowship. Because if I'm going to deal with it, you've got to be in fellowship. 
Now, many Christians don't. They either feel too ashamed of the sin, and so they try and hide it from God. Or they start doing stupid things, like making silly statements to God. Oh, God, I hate that sin. Oh, God, I'll never do it again. The worst thing is that you confess the sin that you've done, and then you've lied to God, and so you're, sti you're still out of fellowship. Because you don't hate the sin. If you hated the sin, you wouldn't do it. Yes? I mean, I hate physical pain. You know, and that's why I don't go around sticking a knife in myself all day. You know, I don't have any desire to do that whatsoever, honestly. <laughs> I mean, you see, I don't suffer from sadism or masochism. That's not my particular hang-up, praise God. You see, first of all, get into fellowship. There is no excuse for any Christian to be out of fellowship, no matter how many sins or problems you've got. Don't ever use sin as an excuse to be out of fellowship. If you know of a sin in your life, get it confessed to God, and then start believing that you're then in fellowship. Oh, and say it, uh, it comes up again five minutes later, or one John one nine again. We really have been very stupid over this question of sin. We've seen people who've been uh, bogged down in sin, you know, and we've had this type of feeling that, oh, well, if you've really repented, you won't do it again. And then you get someone who's an expert in their sin. Why, they spent the last 20 years perfecting it, you know? And, and then you say to them, well, you confess it, but then you mustn't do it again. And the worst thing is, they've got so used to it, they can't help doing it again. Now, what's the real secret? The real secret is not to keep them in bondage over this particular sin. Because I tell you, uh, well, as you well know, Harry says it enough, Harry Greenwood doesn't he, that uh, Satan, he doesn't actually say this, but Satan's in the photographic business. He develops negatives. Mm. You know, you get negative over sin. I tell you, they'll hatch out these sins. They'll hatch out. The answer is not to do that. I tried, you know, over certain sins in my life for years and years and years to get victory in them. And finally, I gave them. I said, well, God, I just can't, and I promise that I'll never do it again. I always do it again, you know? And I, I really thought it was the unforgivable sin every time. I wish someone had done a good take like I've done on the unforgivable sin, <laughs> so that I would understand what it was, you know? And I, I used to say to God, God, I'm just too bad now. And I tell you, my depression began to come back. It seems like this Oh, you can't deal with me. I've done it again. Notice what the Bible says. The Bible says, if your brother sins against you, rebuke him. If he apologizes, if he repents, forgive him. And if he does it 70 times in one day, forgive him. There's no question if he does it, you will get it. You imagine, I come up to this brother and I bash him one on the chin, you know. And he comes along and says, that really put me out of fellowship, brother. You know, and I say, oh, I'm terribly sorry. You know, it was just a desire that I had to bash him on the chin. <laughs> and he says, well, I forgive you. And then five minutes later, I bash him on the chin again. Now, the majority of Christians today would say, oh, well, you see, he, he's not really sorry. For that, or would they put something like this on the Bible says, forgive him 70 times every day if necessary. Now, you've got to forgive yourself for these things, you've got to believe that the grace of God is big enough to cover these things. And if you do, do you know what happens? Satan gives up. Satan finally says, Well, I can't get another fellowship with that thing anymore. And soon you find the sin doesn't bother you anymore. Isn't it crazy? We've got to believe in the grace of God. Most of us find it very hard. We'd rather be whipped and whipped and whipped, wouldn't we? And then we'd say, oh, well, you've forgiven me now, God. You know, I've got the scars to prove that you've forgiven me now. Oh, dear, grace is that Jesus was whipped instead of us. Mm -hmm. Right, so the fifth one is deliberate sin or unconfessed sin. You've got to watch that, right? The sixth one, then, is sheer self-indulgence. And I think number six is the biggest of all. Sheer self-indulgence. Now, let me say this to you. The key of getting rid of depression is you've got to be on God's side in the fight. If you're on your side in the fight, then there's problems. 
You've got an old man, you've got a new man. The old man wants you depressed, the old man wants attention, the old man really wants everyone to see that you're really in a bad state. The new man is saying, oh, forget all that, oh, shucks to that, you know? And, and the, the new man saying, no, we're going to praise Jesus, no, we're going to go Jesus' way. Now you are the will in the middle, and you have to make a decision which one you're going to go for. And the majority of Christians and the majority of depressives, they meekly go along and they settle on the side of the old man. So now you've got the Holy Spirit and the new man battling, and you've got your will and the old man battling on that side. And those Christians delight in depression. They really do. Oh, to everyone they say, oh, it's terrible. But if you are honest about it, you think yourself, it is convenient, isn't it? Yeah, it is convenient. For example, I've known people get depression when they've got big exams coming up. And they can't really cope with the exams, you know. And they think, oh dear, what am I going to do? Well, how convenient to get depressed, because everyone says, oh, it's going to be music. In other words, why no wonder they did so badly in the exams, you know. <laughs> and it's a big excuse, it's a big letter, yes? Or uh, you've got difficult circumstances somewhere in your life, you know. People are expecting things of you. Oh, well, isn't it convenient, you know? Well, I'm depressed, you know. And so everyone says, oh, the poor, the poor person, you know, they're, they're, they're really depressed. And, and the worst thing is, with depression, you put yourself outside of the realm of blame in any way. Because you, no person can blame a depressive. Not really. They might try, but they can't really do it, you know. And the depressive says that. And he says, well, I just can't, I know it's right, but I just can't do it. Yeah. And there's the person. And how on earth does someone cope with that type of situation? Above everything else, the self-indulgence has got to be seen as a luxury none of us can afford. Do never, never, ever, ever permit self-indulgence, please, to dominate your life. Self-indulgence will keep you in bondage to depression more than anything else. Do you know, as I've discovered this, I have learned how to minister to depressives. All right, let me say just a, a little word about ministering to depressives. One, you need immense love. That's the first thing. You've got to go out of your way to love depressives. Secondly, you've got to be extremely tough. You've got to cut through all the malarkey and the rubbish that is put up in the way, and you've got to be really tough. You've got to speak the truth to them, and you've got to really sometimes drag them into the truth, you see. With this chap who was depressed in our fellowship, well, he wasn't a member of our fellowship when he was depressed. He went onto a farm, as I said, started doing a farm laborer's job, and found that he couldn't even cope with the farm labourer's job. And he didn't have someone to kick him round, like I did, later on. And so he finally, you know, went inside his house and just sat there. And a member of our fellowship saw that his grass was growing too long. And he just went down with the lawnmower and started cutting the grass. This chap went to the window and looked out and there was someone cutting his grass. Mm. You know, isn't that amazing? <laughs> <laughs> And started cutting his grass. And Ray, this man, went outside, and Dave Shoyer was the chap, the lovely brother we've got in the fellowship, who also worked on the farm. And he said, Why are you cutting my grass? And Dave said, Well, because I love you. Well, I'm a Methodist. You know, you don't say things like that. And Dave, just like a shame, said, I'm doing it because I love you. That's all. And uh, it did something. It, it really did something. And then the fellow joined the fellowship. And I'll tell you this, I had to go over, I mean, it took hours and hours and hours of my time. And when there was a difficult situation, I'd have to say to him, now look, you can do it, and you will do it now. You know, he was used to people going, like, oh, oh, 
understand. Yes, I understand. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> and you know, I tell you, a depressive need, someone sympathetic, like a hole in the head. Sympathy never got anyone out of depression at all. Because the day comes when the person's too busy to give you sympathy. And all of a sudden, there's someone else who's rejected you. It's <laughs> funny, you know? <laughs> and it makes the depression work. Oh, no. You need, basically, to be tough. Now, kind, but tough. And really to say, now look, you can do this and you can manage it. And what is what I'm going to help you do. You see, this fellow went into depression just because he had to fill in a text form. And so, you know the type of thing the text form? Put it on the side form. So that he had this text thing. So I went round and oh, I can't the text form. I said, your job was going to switch that TV on. And the TV went up and I said, you will sit down at the table. See, and he's a big chap, you know. I pushed around like a chap like me. And I turned down the table. We built it in. Do you know, by the time I left, he said, oh, well, that was... I said, you know, a little bit better. <laughs> Isn't that funny? What was he doing? He was indulging himself, you see. Yes, he knew I was available. Any time I'd have helped him. What was he doing? Well, it's convenient. You know, we'll live the technical times. I can always say that I'm depressed. Oh, the self-indulgence has got to get there. Then, you see. And there's nothing better than a nice, tough, loving Christian who, with a twinkle in his eye, hits you over the head. <laughs> nothing better than that. In love. You know? Praise the Lord. Oh, it's really good to do it. Sometimes the people who are closest find it the hardest to do. They really do. Because they get the backlash. But you see, a chap like me, he can't really be angry with me because I've done too much to help him. And very often he'd say, Oh, I'm really depressed. Don't tell Roger. Do you know what his wife did? He, she always rang me. Because <laughs> when he was feeling good, I got him to agree that whenever he was depressed, his wife would bring me. And he did agree to that, didn't he? <laughs> <laughs> yes, he did. Praise the Lord. But the marvellous thing was, you see, by const this constant battery, he came out of it. But he realised it was worse to get rid of the depression and not have Roger breathing down his neck. <laughs> <laughs> Roger breathing down his neck. Praise the Lord. Now, can you see? This is the type of thing. It, it's an alliance. And I tell you, better are the, wo the, the wounds of a friend mm -hmm. are yes. better than the kisses of an enemy. Mm -hmm. Don't trust a Christian who sympathises with you. They are the devil's advocate. Very often they are trying to do something for themselves, not for you at all. You know, either they're just ignorant, plain ignorant, they don't know how to cope with the situation. A lot of Christians are like that. Or really what they're trying to do is their good deeds with the dead. You know, don't ever trust the person you want around you. And if you're, self, if you're not self-indulgent, this will be the person that you will actually ask to help you. It's someone who will tell you the truth at all times. And even when you're feeling lowest, will come in, they'll love you, and they'll say, now look, we'll do it together. Now look, we're going to get you through, and we're really going to see this one through. And I promise I will be praying. Ring me, you know, at lunchtime. Tell me how you've got on this morning. That's the type of person that you need. You see, a self-indulgent person just doesn't want that type of person around. They want to go and suffer and make everyone else suffer. Drag everyone into your depression. Now, you have a right to be depressed if you want to be depressed. But there's no reason to drag everyone else into your depression, right? All right, let's go through these uh, things that I put. Number one, physical conditions. All right, now I suggested already, of course, the hormonal, hormonal thing. Uh, the, whenever you get a problem, uh, a physical problem at home, please realize it is normal for your body to take a dip at that point. It's at that point you need to be able to call on other people in the fellowship. Say if you're having trouble with the kids or find the kids too much, just to call them. And what you've got to do is not be self-indulgent and sit there saying, well, I'm going to wait till someone rings me. <laughs> and if they're really in the spirit, they'll ring and know that I'm in trouble. 
The trouble is, the people who have time to help you are also sitting in their house saying, well, if they're really spiritual, they're a ruined me. <laughs> you see? And so you've got all these people who should be helping one another, who are all waiting for everyone else to help them. Self-indulgence is the core. Then swallow your own pride and bring someone up. And normally you'll find someone who also has trouble with kids. And you can come to some arrangement. Do something, in other words, to make sure that the physical conditions are removed. If you find yourself in a situation, first of all, say it's at work. Get the body to pray. But if it continues, honestly, it is better to give up your job than to continue with depression. Get the body to pray, first of all. Get ministry on the particular situation. But if you can isolate a particular situation as the root of your depression, then deal with that particular situation. Right? So there's the physical thing. Do something to change the physical condition. And ask the body to help you get advice from elders and so on. Uh, the next one, mental conditions, boredom, feeling of uselessness, and all the rest, right? Again, you've got to swallow your pride. You've got to make sure you have regular contact with people, invite them around, call in on people. We had a woman in our fellowship who would sit there every day. She didn't have any children. She would sit there every day waiting for the fellowship to prove that they loved her by calling by. And God just wouldn't indulge her. No one called her. Praise the Lord. And people who did call, she was always out shopping when they called. Isn't that amazing? And finally she came to see me and she said, no one calls and all the rest. And I thought we were loving fellowship and things like this. And actually I said, well, funny enough, my wife called last week and you were out. And so-and-so called and you were out. And so-and-so called and you were out. And so-and-so called. I said, perhaps it's God who's stopping them coming. And I said, uh, you've had an invitation to this place, that place, the other place. Why haven't you taken them up? And I had to point out to her, she was being totally self-indulgent. We also had another woman in the fellowship, and you know she had terrible problems with, her, with her depression because of a feeling of uselessness. And we had dreadful problems. She'd come in the meeting, you know, and everyone knew she was feeling depressed. Then the next week she'd be all right, and then down again, you know, it used to carry on and on and on like that. And after about two and a half years, she had ministry galore, no one could help her. I was praying about her one day, and God said, the trouble is she doesn't know how important she is and how much she's needed. And he said, if you really want to solve her problem, give her a job in the fellowship. And this woman I gave two jobs to. I won't tell you what it is, what it is because you might be able to identify by her. But actually, she helped in a particular situation in the fellowship with another woman. The other woman does most of the work. But this woman is secondary, but she's always the one that comes first. Do you know what I mean? So that if I write a letter, it's always addressed to this woman first, and then the person who does most of the work. <laughs> and you know, for, for about two and a half years now, we, or three years, we've had no trouble with this woman at all. Because she knows how important she is. She's got two big jobs now in the fellowship, and she's vitally important. She knows that she is. It solved her whole problem. Isn't that staggering? Now there was mental conditions, you see, where she was just feeling useless, and now she feels useful. And she hasn't had depression for two and a half, three years. I mean, isn't that amazing? Just a little thing like that. And if you're in that type of position and you can isolate your own depression as being that type of depression, then do something about it. Go and see the elders. Go and chat and see if there's some area where you can be of some use, <coughs> right, around the fellowship. Right, the third one, demonic forces or, or spiritual forces. Um, the first point is go and seek ministry for the demons but also to someone who can also help you isolate what is the real cause of the depression, all right? And don't always look to demons. I do warn you against that. 
It's so easy, because in a sense you're being self-indulgent, you're passing the buck. You know, oh, it's the demon. It's not my fault. Oh, no, I don't think, no, 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 no. And there you are, and it's you. You are sucking the wretched depression in on yourself and blaming the devil. You know, sometimes I think the devil ought to take out slander action <laughs> against the Christian. The things he is blamed for, and sometimes he must say, I didn't touch him. <laughs> you know, I think it's terrible. It's so easy to blame the devil when it's our fault, isn't it? And do you remember the other uh, point I made under this heading? And that is, someone who's bitter towards God. Now listen. Do you know the great secret over that? It is to pour out your heart to God regularly. Really tell him all about it. Pour it out, pour it out, pour it out. Tell him everything. Tell him, Lord, I'm so sorry. I, I just feel so bitter towards you. You know, I just feel as if life's a big disappointment. You know, because what he'll say to you is, eternal life's a big disappointment. You see? He'll say, why? This life is just nothing. He says, to die is gain. That's the type of word that comes to your head. You see? And you need to pour it out. And listen, every single day you need to have a time of just pouring out your heart to God. Pouring it out. Start talking to him about everything. Bring him into every situation. Till you get used to it. Until finally you can say, he's a friend of mine. Mahalia Jackson did a lovely record about Jesus, my friend. My friend is the king of all kings, and yet my friend talks and guides me. My friend is the lord of all lords, and yet my friend walks beside me. Now that's the type of thing, to get God on your side and to realise he's not ashamed of it, you know. And he's not ashamed of these thoughts, it's what he expects from fallen men. Pour it out, you know, really pour it out. All right, the fourth one was overwork, overtiredness, overstrength. At that point, you've got to realise what danger you are in and you've got to stop. It doesn't matter. Sometimes, you know, people think that things are so important, it's one of the lies of the devil, things are so important that, oh dear, if I don't do this, then it's all going to collapse. It's a total lie of the devil, because I tell you, in a hundred years' time, it won't be important. You'll be dead, no one will even know what you're made of. And all the things that were so important really weren't important to be. You really have to be very careful, and you've got to literally just stop. And I find meditating on the Word stops me. I just put my feet up, I put all the heating on, <laughs> and I had a good old self-indulge. <laughs> in the right, you see. And I just am very conscious that this is a problem. And therefore, I go out of my way to deliberately stop, you know, when it's possible. And you can generally find that if you plan things well enough, and, and stop, in a sense, giving in to other people, you can generally find time. And there are times, you know, when I won't answer the phone. You see, I know my danger points, and I know that they might be disappointed because they think I'm not in. But I know that if I did help them, then gradually I become less and less used to anyone because I just stretch beyond myself. Let me say at this point, by the way, my danger points now are number one and number four. Number one, physical conditions. You know, and I do a lot of dashing around and talking, 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 talking. Then I beat my head out over the Bible. You know, bash, 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 bash. And it would, um, unlike most ministers, I suppose, the moment I get home, it's not to rest. I then am a very active elder in a very active fellowship. And I have people to minister to. We have visitors, you know. And people ring up and say, oh, I'm just in your area and I have a problem. And do you think you could fit me in? You know, and I have to start doing this type of thing and try and uh, uh, get together with the elders. Sometimes the elders need encouraging. Sometimes I get phone calls from elders from other areas and they need encouraging you know, because their fellowships are going to a hard time or something. And I've got to constantly give out, you know. And sometimes, if I've had a hard person on the phone, I've got the phone down, I feel a bit low, you know. 
That's a, de- that's a physical condition. Now, I mustn't say, oh, it's the devil attacking me, or, oh, 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 depression is coming back. Or, no, no, no. What do I do? I sit and I literally just have a time with the Lord, pour it out to him, meditate. I stop. Overwork over tiredness is a major one with me as well. I think I gave blood earlier this year. And as soon as I'd given blood, I then went out to Sweden to do a conference. And then on to, we were going to have three days recuperating in Denmark, but then the Christians heard I was coming. So I ended up three days of ministry in Denmark. And I flew back into this country. And of course, I planned my timetable, assuming I'd have three days off in Denmark. So again, we went through. And I'll tell you, I began to see the depression beginning to creep on. You know. Now, what I try and do, unfortunately, I have a good wife who tells me the truth. You know, I won't indulge me either. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't indulge her either, praise the Lord. And we agree not to indulge one another in any way at all. And um, uh, when we see the problem uh, coming up, we deliberately take evasive action. Normally, when I get back from an arduous time of fellowship, you know, because some fellowships I go to, they give me morning, afternoon, evening, morning, afternoon, evening, morning, afternoon, evening, of talk, 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 talk. Timmy was very nice over this. He said, well, if you don't, don't feel you can manage it, then don't. Let's go to Psalm 32, shall we? All right, Psalm 32. This is Uncle Thirty-Seven, number five. Now, I've been going now so far. Is everyone still okay? You can take some more, can you? Okay. Right? I've got as much as you want. Now then, praise the Lord. You've got to speak this evening. And that's probably all right too. I'll collapse tomorrow evening. Now then. No, that's a wrong confession. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Verse 1. Psalm 32, verse 1. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven whose sin is covered. Isn't that lovely? And if you don't know that your sins are forgiven, then you're in great trouble. Very often, you know, it can be something in the past that we haven't forgiven ourselves for. That can be the little trigger point. If that is the case, you've got to get on your knees and literally say, I'm not getting up, Father, till I know your forgiveness in the depth of my being. Sometimes you'll have to go and confess the sin to someone else. The way you don't confess it to too many people because if you do, soon you get blase about the sin. And that, you mustn't do that either. There's a terrible danger in that. Christians do it, you know. For example, that you, someone can have a secret sin, say, you know, one of these sins that everyone goes, oh, about, you know, uh, well, I, I suppose I shouldn't mention any sin. But you know the type of sin, don't you, that most people frown upon. And it's a little secret sin. And they finally go, and they're all red-faced. And, you know, and they come in, they've got a sin. You know, and I can normally say it's one of four or five sins. You know, I can normally tell which sin it is if they react like that. And then they confess it to me. And then they confess it to someone else and confess it to someone else. And do you know, it becomes so ordinary, everyone knows about it. And then they don't think it's really so bad. Mm. Now, that's a danger. Don't ever do that. Confess your sins to one another, not to everyone. Praise the Lord, you see. And if you find that you don't know forgiveness in the depth of your being, then you need someone to go and confess the sin to and really get them to pray. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity. The word impute means to count something as so, even though it's not so. <laughs> so here's a man who really has a big problem, but God counts him as righteous. And the moment you confess your sin, God counts you as righteous. All right? Uh, imputeth not iniquity. And in whose spirit there is no guile. Then his, uh, his own experience. When I kept silence, my bones waxed old, waxed old 
through my roaring, my screaming all the day. Complaining, really. I complained and complained and complained and complained, complained and complained and complained. And guess what? My bones waxed old. A weariness came into my life, you know. Oh, I felt as if I could, had no energy for anything. I really had given up on life. Verse 4. For day and night thy hand was heavy upon me. Heavy upon me, pushing you down. What's that? That's depression. And sometimes it's the hand of God trying to bring you back to himself. You see? And it's unconfessed sin. Your hand was heavy upon me. My moisture is turned into the drought of summer. Just think about that, he says. Selah. Just have a think about that. Then he says, I acknowledge my sin unto thee, and mine iniquity have I not hid. I said, I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord, and thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin. Selah. For this shall every one that is godly pray unto thee in the time when thou mayest be found. For forgiveness, everyone who is godly will pray unto thee. Isn't that amazing? The godly pray for forgiveness. The godly, you think that the godly walk around so holy they never need to, to confess their sins. Compared to God, even your good deeds and righteousness is as filthy rags. We all need to confess our sins. And the more you go on with God, the more of a wretched sinner you find yourself to be. Isn't that marvellous news for us all? Hallelujah. Yes, we're all as filthy as can be. Whoopee. Hallelujah. Because <laughs> it means we have to trust on God's absolute righteousness. And so it goes on. And look at this. And it says, For this shall everyone that is godly pray unto thee, in a time when thou mayest be found. Surely in the floods of great waters they shall not come nigh unto him. Yes, that's it. And then it says, Thou art my hiding place. Thou shalt preserve me from trouble. Thou shalt come... come me about with songs of deliverance. Selah. I will instruct thee, says the Lord, and I will teach thee in the way that thou shalt go. I will guide thee with mine own eye. And verse 9, be not as a horse or as the mule which have no understanding. And after this morning, you will have us some understanding. The key, I hope, to your own particular depressive situation. Don't be like the mule or the horse, kicked around, you know, just wandering anywhere. The ass sniffs the air. And the nicest bit of scent, it wanders off in that direction. Forget that altogether. <laughs> be understanding in your own situation, you see. Whose mouth must be held in. And so it goes on. Right? Be glad in the Lord, rejoice. And things like this. Now, fine. Are there any other sort of things that I can say to help you answer depression? Well, yes, there are. One, even if you don't feel like it, you've got to have a time for confession and prayer to the Lord. It's got to be your regular routine. I tell you this, most depressives who are on pills, no matter what they're feeling like, they always take their pills in the morning. They never say, oh, I'm too depressed to take these pills. <laughs> Isn't that funny? You know, they always take their pills. And yet, the spiritual pills, they won't take. You have got to make sure that you get on your knees and have a time with the Lord, or just sit in a comfy chair and have a time with the Lord, and read a passage in the Gospel. This is regular medicine. And it's never saying, well, I don't understand it. It's quite immaterial. You've got to do it. It's medicine. You don't understand what that pill does to you when you take it, do you? You don't say, oh yes, well it's so-and-so-and-so, uh, stelazine. And what the stelazine does is it goes inside of me, okay, and you don't understand it. You just take it in. So you've got to take in the Word of God regularly. Jesus said, come unto me, all you, ye, who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, right, and learn of me. That's what he said. The yoke of Jesus is easy, but you've got to come to him. First of all, you must make it regular. Every single day, every single lunchtime if necessary, every single time of the evening, even when you don't feel like it. Next, you've got to claim those promises. The promises are the best medicine you could possibly get. Claim them, claim them, claim them. Like Isaiah 41 verse 10. Right? Claim it. Psalm 55 verse 22. 
claim it. 1 Peter 5, 7, claim it. Romans 8, 28, claim it. Get those promises really known. I'll tell you this, I went through a time which was terrible in my life. When I had led a lot of people to the Lord, I was one and a half to two years old in Jesus. I led loads of people to the Lord who were then looking to me as Jesus, really. You know, because some people do this. They, they can't discern Jesus themselves, so they pick on a minister to do it. And that's not bad, as long as eventually their eyes go on to Jesus. You know, sometimes, to show you the type of thing, I used to get embarrassed by the type of hospitality I received, you know. And I'd go around and there was always a roast. In fact, one place I went to, we had roast chicken and, and roast potatoes and peas and carrots. Five consecutive meals, except for breakfast, you know. <laughs> and every time I went in, you know, it was ch more chicken. You know, I felt like they'd pull over the other leg, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, and I got so embarrassed about this. And also, I'd have loved just baked beans on toast. <laughs> you know, sometimes you feel like that, don't you? And I got really embarrassed. And I used to say to them, oh, you know, please, no, don't do anything special. And I'd, I'd ring up and, and they'd say, what would you like for lunch? And I'd say, oh, scrambled eggs. You know, oh, come on, you know. <laughs> would you like a steak? And I'd say, no, please, please, just scrambled eggs. I'd say, I'd really love scrambled eggs. And then I'd say, no, let me stay. <laughs> you know. I used to get so embarrassed about this. And one day, the Lord really rebuked me for it. And he said, Roger, you don't be rotten. Honestly, don't say horrible. And he said, it's only your pride. That's all it is. It's inverted pride. That's all. And he said this, that uh, they can't entertain Jesus to a meal. So they treat you like they would the Lord. And really, they're giving you the food. But really, it's an offering to Jesus. And please be generous, because it's not given to you. It's given to me. You know, who do you think you are? You're my servant, boy. <laughs> you know? And, and that's really... You know, set me right. Well, I was in this situation at university, and these people were looking to me as unto Jesus, you know. And as long as I had a smile on my face, they were happy. You know, they were very young Christians, you know, before they really got switched on to the Lord. And all of a sudden, a terrible bout of depression came. Oh, it's dreadful. And here I was in an impossible situation. Isn't God clever? Because my pride wouldn't let me walk around with a face as long as a bus, you know, because they were all looking to me. I'd led them to the Lord, you know. And, but I was feeling absolutely rotten. And at first I thought it was hypocrisy, you know, that I was being all sort of up, trying my best. Oh, it's exhausting too, I tell you. Trying to be all up when really my heart wasn't in it. My heart was in my mouth most of the, the time. I felt really rotten. But God said, no, I'm teaching you that when you live in me, it's not hypocrisy. You know, that rejoicing in the Lord thy God is not hypocrisy. I'm telling you to rejoice in me, not in yourself. You may be feeling awful, but it doesn't matter, because in me, you're fine, you see. And he showed me a beautiful picture. There's, well, there's a, this is a lovely thing that they've got on their wall. I was admiring it this morning. It's a gorgeous little thing, you know. Now, listen, you may be feeling terribly ill, but you can say, well, that's good. It's not hypocrisy, you see. It is good. And when you rejoice in God, you're rejoicing because he's good. Mm. It's not hypocrisy, you see, for you to do it. And when you go along to a meeting, you might be feeling a bit low. Stand up and jolly well rejoice and jump for joy. Praise the Lord. Because you're not rejoicing in you. You're rejoicing in him, in him. And he's worthy of it. That's what you've got to see. Don't let the devil say, you hypocrite. You've just been down and editing over the wheat of this morning. Here you are dancing about. You know, you hypocrite. That's the devil talking. Nonsense. You rejoice in the Lord thy God. Hallelujah. And then go home and be depressed again if you want to be. You see, but as long as you rejoice. And I was caught, and you know, God taught me that I could control it. It was funny. I'd always thought I couldn't. I learned how to do it. Isn't that interesting? I really did, like playing the piano. At first, you can't control your fingers, but soon you learn how to do it. And depression's the same. 
You learned how to control this, not you. I tell you what I did. I used to get back to my room feeling terrible. I covered a whole wall that size with promises written out in big letters. And do you know, with tears streaming down my cheeks, I recited them one after the other. Ah, dear, over and over and over and over again. I shall keep him in perfect peace, his mind is stayed on me, for he trusts in me. Trust me in the Lord Jehovah. You know, all thy life, full stop. Um, casting all thy care upon him, that he cares for, for me. Romans 8, 28, you know, we know that all things, all things, work together to good to those that love God, to those who are the cause, according to his purpose. His purpose. You know, and over and over, and I used to recite them across the wall like this, and what was it? It was my daily exercises. Getting back into mental shape. You see, that's what it was. Oh, over and over, every morning, recite them. The chat next door must thought I was bombing. <laughs> you know, hearing, hearing, oh, sometimes wailing them out, but claiming them, claiming them, claiming them. Why? Because I was determined that this wretched depression wasn't going to dominate me anymore. You've got to have a heart like that to get rid of depression. Do you see? It's jolly tough work. But I tell you, we were talking this morning about losing weight after having children. I didn't have the trouble. But uh, <laughs> uh, losing weight. I'm afraid it takes effort. And I'm afraid getting free of depression takes effort. Most Christians sort of put their feet up and say, well, come on, God, when are you going to do something about it? Or when's this minister going to help me? You know? Well, no minister can help you. You're just too self-indulgent. You know? You've got to move in and use the medicine. The doctor can prescribe the medicine. If you won't take it, I'm afraid it won't do you any good. Having it in the bottle, having it in the Bible isn't going to help you. Having it in a minister won't help you. You've got to actually start applying it. All right, let me just complete what I've said by giving you a lovely example in the Bible, shall I? I love this man, Elijah. James talks of Elijah, and he says that he's a man of like passions to us. That means that really, well, he had trouble in certain areas, you know, depression and uh, things like this. And, um, oh, that's lovely. I thought we had a war out for the moment. <laughs> um, by the way, have you ever noticed uh, the list in Hebrews 11, the faith list? Many people think they're men of great faith. Do you know they weren't? Have you ever noticed that? It, Hebrews 11 uh, is a whole group of messes. The biggest messes you've ever seen in your life. Honestly, they're men who've been disadvantaged, they're men who've been stupid, they're men who've been carnal, they're men who've had terrible sins. You know, Gideon, Jephthah. <laughs> you know, people like Moses and things like this, you know? People that really, if you looked into their lives, you wouldn't give tuppence for them. Why are they called men of faith? I'll tell you why. Because they believe God was even bigger than their problems were. That's why they're so great and why they're there. Jacob is there and Sarah, who laughed when God said what he was going to do. Isn't that staggering when you think of it? Now, be encouraged by that because, honestly, I sometimes say to God, God, oh, hallelujah, I might be in there one day. A big meta like me, really, you know, someone incapable of controlling or containing my life. And God has, has finally proved himself to be bigger than I was. And Elijah was a man of remarkable passion to us. He really was. All right, let's turn to it. Uh, let's turn to 1 Kings 19. Here it is, 1 Kings 19. Now, will you remember this? In 1 Kings 18, he's had the biggest revival that you could ever imagine. The witching hour of midday. <laughs> right, we'll go, we'll plough on despite it. Funny enough, I have music lessons, you know, or oh, I try and get them fitted in. And she's got a clock that chimes, well, almost every five minutes, it seems to me. And it's always off key, you know. And I'm playing away, and I feel like stopping, I have to go right through. It's jolly good training, isn't it? <laughs> right, remember, in 1 Kings 18, he's had the biggest revival. He's just seen the complete defeat of all of Baal worship in Israel. 
Remember that. At this time, you've got a wretched man called Ahab on the throne, and he's married to one of the worst women that ever, ever came on, you know, in, into a, a position of power in Israel. She was beaten only by her daughter, Athaliah, who was a worse wretch than she was. You know, she was ghastly, absolutely awful woman. Oh dear. In fact, I suppose Amon was probably the worst king of Israel. The, 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 the worst king of Judah, the devil there was. Manasseh was pretty bad. You know, Josiah was the best, undoubtedly. Jezebel was one of the worst queens, you know. And all of a sudden, her pet worship, she had been born, you know, to the high priest of Baalism. Ethbaal, his name was. Fancy him, Ethbaal. <laughs> Amazing, you know, really loved his God. And uh, she'd been born into that, and she'd spread Baalism throughout the land. And here's Elijah, and he's just defeated all the priests of Baal. They're all killed, all dead. She's the only one left, and her wretched husband, who is in her train. You know? And here's Elijah. A tremendous victory has been won. Now, 1 Kings 19 won. Now, remember, he's, he's now very tired. He's been under tremendous mental strain. He really has. And it's taken a great deal from him. Now, what he should have done, honestly, he should have gone to the seaside. You know? He should have gone and put his feet up and had a rest. And Jezebel's a very clever woman. If she hated Elijah, do you know, she could easily have, have got a man and said, look, shh, go and kill Elijah. That's what she could have said. And she could have sent this man, and she could have stabbed Elijah in the back. God would have stopped it, of course, but she could have tried that. Oh, no, she doesn't bother. She knows that Elijah's exhausted. She knows the type of man that he is. So look what happened, verse 1. And Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, and with all how he had slain all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger, not an assassin, a messenger unto Elijah, saying, So let the gods do to me, and more also, if I make not thy life as the life as one of them by tomorrow about this time. Now why did she do that? Because she knew that a death threat will get him on the run. She knew that. So she sent a message and said, I'm going to have you killed. A death threat. Now I'll tell you, Elijah collapsed as soon as he perceived and that's exactly what Jezebel wanted. Do you know, Jezebel realized that if Elijah was killed, she'd be blamed. But if he went and killed himself, he'd be blamed. That's clever. If he had a complete mental collapse, then it's God who gets blamed. And finally, all the people say, well, really, Baal won. It looks as if God was winning, but really, Baal won, because then look what's happened to Elijah now. Very clever, you know, isn't it? It's, it she's a brilliant woman, this Jezebel. And I've had a death threat once. You know, I had a death threat. I was a teacher. And, I, and I've been talking to a group of third formers, and I, I was a very popular teacher at school, may I hasten to add. Um, and uh, I've been talking to them about how society is really based on mutual trust. And I said, for example, you, you children, you know, if you decided to, you could take over the school until police force, the police force came in. And I said, really, any group of people can take over society if they really wanted to. There is a basic trust, you know. And a group of kids, I admire them actually, uh, for their pluck, they decided well, I wonder whether it's true. So they wrote me a death note. Some of the best in the class, too. And they just slipped it in the register in the morning. So I looked at this uh, death note, and I'll tell you, the things, the palpitations that went through my life, it was amazing, really was. And uh, I didn't know what I should do about this thing, you know. And um, uh, they were, of course, in the classroom, and they saw my reaction, you know, looked down and read that. And it was second. Now, at lunchtime, they came to see me and said, oh, it's auntie, it was only... We didn't really mean it. We're so sorry that we did it. You know, they were just testing out the hypothesis. But you know, I could understand what Elijah felt like. He 
even though I knew, really, fundamentally, the hope, you know. And, and I mean, I didn't take any disciplinary reaction because they were simply putting my theories to the test. I The last time, <laughs> it's like having a four-year-old boy sitting at the table and sort of saying, oh, when I was your age, I used to put jam on my head. <laughs> I've learned not to do that. <laughs> right, or I used to eat candles when I was your age. <laughs> Marvellous, you know, mum and dad is scowling at you. And that's all he, Jezebel did. Now, do you know that Elijah goes through now a complete depression because of it? His basic cause was simple fear, caused because his resources were low. My resistance is low. You know that old song that they used to be? You know, my resistance is low. You've got to watch it when your resistance is low. You really have. And if my resistance is low, my wife answers the phone. You know, and if it is a problem, she says, ring tomorrow. You know, because she knows that all I need is a day away from problems, and then I'm fine. You know, you've got to watch it yourself. Right, and look what he says. And he went, uh, and when he saw that, he arose and went for his life, came to Beersheba, a hundred miles away, this one, drove a hundred miles, and no telephone, you know, no taxis or anything like that, just a few chariots. And he came to Beersheba, which belonged to Judah, and look, and left his servant there. Now, these men never travel anywhere without their servants. This is depression. You know, the servant has to be left on one side. And finally he went on. And look at this. And he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. Yeah. I used to sit in a darkened room when I was in I used to feel best in a darkened room. I draw the curtains. And I used to put on really somber string quartets. <laughs> string quartets. And I used to sit there and, you know, really have a good time. <laughs> Depressing thorn of art. <laughs> and came and he sat down under a juniper tree. There we are, you know, smelling of gin. Do you know they make gin under juniper trees? And he'd sit there under, under this, and it's all prickly, you know. And he sat there under this juniper tree. Oh, there, there we are. This is the sign of utter dejection. And he requested for himself that he might die. Now, at least he had a bit of Bible knowledge, and he knew that suicide was out of the question. Never, ever, ever contemplate suicide. If you do, you're blaspheming against God. Just don't bother to do that kind of thing. God is quite capable of taking your life back. You'll get this ceiling could fall in any time, and you'll be under the heaviest bed, honestly, the moment he wants you to go. And if you've heard my tape, uh, did it, were any of you at Bogner? Um, I did, the Blood and the New Covenant. In the first one, I described why suicide is always wrong for the believer. Right? We must never contemplate. That is self-indulgence, if I may say so. Don't be self-indulgent. I was telling Tim and Sheila, we have a rule in our fellowship. If someone tries to commit suicide, we've only had a, a couple, but no, we won't allow anyone to go and visit them in the hospital. Except for me. <laughs> 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 the, one, yeah, the one person they don't want to see, you see. Now why? Because I won't indulge you. Know, it's been sheer self-indulgence, you know, or defeatism or something like this. I'll be the yes. And you know, it solves the whole problem. They never do it again because they think they can't face having me coming in again, you know, <laughs> to see them. All right? Now here he says, Lord, please, will you take my life? Now that's acceptable. Lord, please take my life. And if you're depressed and really you know, want to go, I've got to take your life. They don't you do it. Right? And God will probably say, no, I've still got a purpose for you. If you're still alive, I've got a purpose for your life. And he requested for himself that he might die and says, it is enough. Now, O oh Lord, take away my life. <laughs> Tell me now, Lord, I've had enough. You know, I've just seen the greatest revival that there's ever been. <laughs> and it's enough. And what had happened? He forgot all the blessings, the, the glories of the past. He got preoccupied with one little letter from Jezebel. <laughs> 
Look at this, for I am not better than my fathers. And here is a man. He has got very high standards, his own standards, not God's standards, and he can't live up to them. And you know, a number of depressives are perfectionists. And they feel they're not good enough. They've got an idea of what their standards should be, and they can't live up to their house isn't as good as they think it should be. They're not running their lives as well as they should be. I had a woman with five kids who did an excellent job, and she came to see me. She said, ah, oh, ah, oh, she said, auntie, I just don't run the house well enough. You know, that five kids, very demanding kids too, and a husband in a very demanding job. I don't run the house well enough. And every time I've been in that house, I was amazed at how well she ran the house. You know, considering she had five kids. I mean, it was staggering. And I said, oh yes. And, and what she'd done, she looked at Roses and my house at the time when we didn't have any kids. She said, well, I wish my house was as well run as mine. I said, my dear, I said, well, we've got five kids. Then come and have a look. <laughs> you know, I said, then, if it's better at run, then you might, I might allow you to be depressed. You know, but the chances are, you know, that we have toys all around the floor as well. Otherwise, all our kids will be tied up there, tied up with their hands around their backs, you know. And, and she'd set herself too high standards. And you've got to be aware of that. And here is, oh, I'm no better than my father's. Well, who said he was going to be? God never did. God said, well, your fathers are fallen, you're fallen, you're wretched, you know, you're all wretched. That's what he said. But I've anointed you and appointed you. So what on earth are you getting depressed about? And then verse 5, we get the recovery beginning, right? And here's God, it's, it's lovely. And as he lay and slept under a juniper tree, now he's going to feel better anyway through sleeping. As he slept under a juniper tree, behold, then an angel touched him and said unto him, Arise and eat. And he looked and behold, there was a cake baken on the coals and a cruise of water at his head. And he did eat and drink, and he laid him down again. And God comes at this point just to tell Elijah he's not forgotten. You know, and that's the first key, the way I began this evening, uh, this morning, right? By saying, always remember, God is always there. And sometimes you need a real tangible proof that God is there. And ask God to prove it in some way. You'll always find someone wondering up, just at the time you need. You know, there'll be a little something that just proves God is there. It's the first key in uh, delivery from depression. Arise, eat, and, and he ate and did drink, and laid him down again. And the angel of the Lord came again the second time, touched him, and said, Arise, me, because the journey is too great for me. And he's on his way to Horeb, Mount Sinai. And did eat and drink, and went in the strength of that meat forty days and forty nights under Horeb, the Mount of God. And look, and he came thither unto a cave and lodged there. Yeah, here he is in his real depressive mood, now in a cave, dank with water dripping on his head, just perfect. The perfect place, you know. And no attempt, this is really self-indulgence, of course, you know, going to, to the place that uh, he felt most at home. And look what's this. And behold, the word of the Lord came unto him and said unto him, What doest thou here, Elijah? And here, Elijah is being forced by God to pour it all out. You've got to talk to God about it all. Get every detail sorted out. And in the next verse, you find just how self-orientated he is. The devil got him looking at himself all the time. And look, he said, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, thrown down thine altars, and slain thy prophets with the sword. And I, even I, only, am left. And they seek to my life to take it away. Oh, God, I've poured myself out. I've done so much. I've laid my life down for every person in this fellowship. When they needed help, then I've given them help. But when I needed help, no one came. 
And look what happens here. Right? God will answer him, but God will do more. He will give him a new purpose in life. He's going to give him a new ministry. And if you find yourself in this position of boredom, discouragement, whatever it is, seek God for the new ministry. You know? Really, your ministry might be just going around visiting people. You know? And instead of you sitting uh, self-indulgently at home, all lonely, find out in the fellowship where there are women with children, where there are women like yourself, self-indulgent, sitting by themselves, and actually ring them up and arrange a whole itinerary for yourself. And after you've done that, you won't have time to be lonely. And I'll tell you something, you know, I don't have time to have personal problems. I really don't, I just don't get tired. And as a result is, I can't think of one personal problem that I've got, I can't think of it. Isn't that amazing? You know, I haven't had time to think about it. And look what it says. And so God gives him a task. Verse 15. The Lord said unto him, Go, return on thy way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when thou comest, anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, thou shalt anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel Meholah, shalt thou anoint to be prophet in thy room. And it shall come to pass that him that escapeth the sword of Hazael shall Jehu slay. Him that escapeth from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha slay. These men of God, aren't you pleased that we don't have this type of power? You know, coming to Kingston, your are cut in half. <laughs> Literally. And look at verse 18. Yet I have left me 7,000 in Israel. You self-indulgent man. You self-centered man. You think you're the only one listening to say, I've got 7,000 who are suffering the same way that you are in Israel. And he said, all the knees which have not bowed unto Baal, and every mouth which has not said. And you see, by this time, Elijah is back in the move again. He's self-indulgent. God's forgiven him. He's moving on. All right, I won't go on too much longer. Um, let's just end with a psalm, shall we? All right, and it's a psalm which is one of these promises. Psalm 86. Psalm 86. And it's specifically verse 11 to 13. Teach me thy way, O Lord. I will walk in thy truth. Not in my truth, or what is true about me, but in your truth. And look, unite my heart to fear thy name. Unite my heart. That means that in the heart of man, there are different ways that the heart works. And he says, Lord, will you take care? Lord, I have a personal affection for this. Lord, I have a desire to do this. Lord, I want to do this. Lord, this is an area of weakness. Lord, will you unite all the desires in my heart to fear you, first of all, which is the beginning of wisdom. Then he says, I will praise thee, O Lord my God, with all my heart, every area. And I will glorify thy name forevermore, for great is thy mercy toward me. And thou hast delivered my soul from the lowest hell. And that was his testimony. David was a man who went through depression, up, depression, up. He never got discovered. He's a great man, because he never did. He was a sinner of, of the likes that most of us in this room have never been sinners. And yet still he's called. You know, it's the throne of David still. It's marvelous. God's grace is overwhelming. He can overcome anything. All right? Now, let's just pray, verse 11. All right? Father, I do thank you for this morning, Lord. Father, every person here who has suffered from depression, Father, will you please just teach them in Jesus' name? Father, show them that they have power over this depression as long as they sit down and are honest with themselves about it. Father, please give them the courage not to be self-indulgent, Lord, in any way, but, Father, really to move on in your truth. Father, that they might say, teach me thy way, O Lord. Mm. Father, we recognize that our ways are not your ways. Our paths are not your paths. But, Father, we want to walk in your way. Father, will you teach us 
We give you permission by the Holy Spirit this morning to teach us your way. Father, come in and move us according to your way. Father, that we might say, I will walk in thy truth. Father, really show us what truth is. Father, really teach us truth. Father, you know that for all our lives, we've thought that what we experience is truth. We've, we think that what we think is truth. Father, will you show us that it's not truth? Father, it's, it's semi-truth. Father, it's you that are the source of all truth. You say about us, Father, that we are more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. Father, would you please move upon us, Father, so that, Father, we will to do your, your good deeds. Father, really control our willpower, Lord. I will walk in thy truth. Father, just give us the determination and courage to say it. I will. Yes, I will do it, Lord. Father, so often, Father, we, we really self-indulge ourselves terribly. Forgive us for our self-indulgence. Father, I will put off the self-indulgence in Jesus' name. I will walk in your truth. And Father, will you unite our hearts, Father, to fear your name. Father, take all of our wretched hearts, the directions in which we go. And Father, bring them into captivity unto Christ in the name of Jesus. Father, you see this morning we've had limited time. And, and I just pray, Father, that perhaps something that I've said might be the very key to unlock the situation. Father, you're the only one that can deal with depression. Father, will you move? Even in the midst, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Thank you for making Elijah just such a wonderful encouragement to us, Lord, through his failure. And Father, if my failure can be encouragement to anyone else, well, so be it, Lord. Hallelujah. Amen. I was going to finish. One last verse just slips into my mind. Right, 2 Corinthians chapter 1. I must just give this, because all of you who are depressive, do you know the end result of your depression? God wants you able to minister to others who have depression. Yes. Yeah. Not to give a talk like I've given, because the real help of depression isn't given in a meeting like this. It's going alongside someone to actually help them through it, you see. Right, and in your fellowship, you need people who will have the determination to. And in verse 3 and 4, 2 Corinthians is a very neglected book. It's got some glorious truth in it. Marvellous book. 2 Corinthians 1, 3 and 4. Just floated into my head as we were praying. Unfortunately, I knew where the verse was. Hallelujah. <laughs> uh, 3 and 4. Blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies. Isn't that lovely? And the God of all comfort, who comforted us in all our tribulations, that we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble by the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God. Isn't that lovely? And God says, whatever you've gone through, don't say, oh dear, I wish I hadn't gone through that. Say, oh, isn't this marvelous? Because I know I'm going to minister to people with a similar background. And all of you who have been depressed, if you be jolly well encouraged, God can use you in this ministry of depression. Hallelujah. All right? I hope you're